0: Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thanks for listening this week. This is episode number 11. What a long, strange trip it's been these past two and a half months. We've laughed, we've shed some tears. Okay, fine, we haven't really cried, but still, you can listen to all of our past episodes on iTunes, just subscribe to Deal of the Week, or you can stream them online at bloomberg.com backslash audio, you can find Deal of the Week there alongside all of Bloomberg's excellent podcasts, Uh, just scroll down for Deal of the Week. And as you know, if you've listened to the show before, one of the goals is to try to speak with people with inside real-time information on the world of mergers and acquisitions, So that's exactly what we're doing this week. We'll be speaking with J.P. Morgan, Global Chairman of M&A, Kurt Simon. Uh, His sense of market conditions and his history of doing mega deals is really A+. I mean, we couldn't ask for a better guest. Kurt is involved with many of the biggest, highest profile deals uh, uh, really every year in recent memory, including this year. This is a guy you really want to listen to in terms of understanding the job, M&A Investment Banker. But first, it's time for our weekly segment, What's the Big Deal? And it's about time we address this week's topic on the show, because there seems like there's a rumor about this company every single week, and most are incorrect. So we're going to talk about Twitter. And joining me this week from San Francisco is Bloomberg's Twitter reporter, Sarah Fryer. Hi, Sarah.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Let's kick this off. What was this week's Twitter M&A rumor du jour or or dis is that would that be the it's...
1: this this week we heard about Silver Lake and Mark Andreessen that they may have been um in cahoots to buy all or some of Twitter. It seems pretty far-fetched. and I think we heard from our sources that it pretty much was far-fetched. But it's just an example of how this company is really, um, as the stock price goes down, sparking interest in a deal, whether that's coming from Wall Street or from actual people who could do the deal, uh, it is becoming cheaper and uh, therefore more attractive. So
0: I'm wondering, sir, and I have some uh, some thoughts on this myself, but in your opinion, it, it does seem like every one of these little rumors that comes up about Twitter, and, and look, I mean, just off the top of my head, I can think of, in recent memory, there was a rumor that Fox was interested in buying Twitter, that Fox then went on the record and denied. Uh, there have been several rumors that Google has been interested in buying Twitter. Uh, there was one several months ago that I remember about Facebook being interested in buying Twitter, some of these seem to have real impact on the stock. In other words, you'll see a sort of a, a story go out there and the stock will jump 3 or 4%. Do you feel like Twitter is, for whatever reason, more sensitive to sort of these M&A rumors than maybe another company would be?
1: Absolutely. I think Twitter is just at this point where uh, they haven't quite proven out the gross story that That Wall Street wants them to and so any little speck of extra information about the company's fate causes the stock to move wildly.
0: I've spent the last week or so uh, uh, talking quite a bit about Twitter to various different sources in part because of some of these rumors and my job is to break M&A news and I don't want to be caught off guard in case there is in fact something going on and I've sort of been told the same story from a lot of the people that I trust around this company, which is, one, the company is not for sale, and the company is not working with advisors on a sale. However, point two, the company probably should be acquired. Uh, In other words, Twitter has no clear-cut plan for how to move forward in its future to get to profitability anytime soon. Uh, and, And you know this better than I do, Sarah. Maybe we can talk a little bit about this before we get into what's sort of the likely outcome for Twitter, What exactly is going on with their business? Why has Twitter – Twitter shares are down almost 30% now. Why is it that they've sort of stopped growing from a user base, and what are some of the other problems with the business?
1: Well, to to sort of explain this in the most uh – Comprehensive way I can. You have to look back to what Twitter told people about itself during the IPO, uh, which is that they they wanted to be the the biggest site for people to find out what's happening in the moment um, and, and reach everyone in the world. And at the time of the IPO, they were like the the second biggest really important social network after Facebook. And Facebook had done really well. And so, people looked at Twitter and thought, this is going to be the next Facebook, and and bought into it that way. But it turned out that Twitter's model for user growth and their model for their, their advertising is not quite like Facebook at all. Um, the way they've sort of shifted it as their growth started to slow, um, they changed the story to say, well, actually, we don't really care so much about how many people are coming to Twitter itself. We want to be more like YouTube, and, and you can use us whether you're logged in or not. The problem was they didn't actually have a way for their product to let in users who didn't have accounts. Now they do. Um, but it's a little too late, and, and it's a little too late for people to see the actual numbers get better uh, in terms of their, um, the reach of their advertising. And so this company has, has redefined itself, changed which metrics it wants Wall Street to look at, gone through a number of high-profile executive changes. So it's just been a story of, of turbulence and, and missed expectations and confusion over what this company is trying to be. Uh, now Jack Dorsey is at the helm. and And... Trying to inspire some confidence, but Jack Dorsey also runs Square, and Square is not doing so well on the public markets either.
0: So we've got a company here that's being run by its founder, who's also the founder and CEO of another public company right now. the The company itself uh, is clearly struggling with user growth. The product itself really has never made money ever, uh, and has has always been somewhat questionable in terms of where sort of the end game was for Twitter. So. I wonder if it sort of makes sense at this point to simply ask you, does Twitter make sense as an independent public company at this stage?
1: I think that that it made more sense in 2013 than it does today. When Twitter went public, um, like I said, it was like the second biggest social network. Um, now... WhatsApp is bigger, Instagram's bigger, Facebook Messenger is bigger, Snapchat is gaining fast. Um, you know, we haven't heard if it's surpassed Twitter yet, but, you know, every indication is that it's extremely fast-growing. Um, so the, to the extent that it becomes difficult for advertisers to justify, putting their campaigns on Twitter compared to these other larger, faster-growing places, I mean, that could be a real problem for the company. So I don't think it was necessarily a bad idea to go public, but I do think that the pressure from Wall Street is definitely um, making it harder for the company to deliver on its on its promises and and keep people and have focus. And, you know, maybe they'd be better off in someone else's hands.
0: So last question for you, Sarah, uh, who do you think makes sense to buy Twitter?
1: (laughs) Well, if you ask what makes sense, uh, it's definitely Google. I mean, Google and Twitter have have had a a growing relationship over the past few years. Um, Twitter ads are now uh, served through DoubleClick. Google's Ad system, uh, they have a search deal whereby tweets show up in Google search results. Um, they were, you know, very much. Working together at CES uh, to talk to advertisers jointly in some cases. So I think that um, you know, if you think about Twitter's relationship and actually a lot of good Twitter people have come from Google and vice versa, um, that makes sense. Whether Google wants to do that, I mean, like I said, they've already done those deals for search and for ads, and so maybe they don't actually need to buy Twitter, but. You know, in terms of their relationships, that's uh, that makes sense. But also, one of the sort of bigger content media companies like like uh, Comcast or Verizon could could make sense too, because they just want to, you know, own more of the communications that come out of Twitter, and and there are so many opportunities to display tweets elsewhere that maybe they could come up with some way to do that.
0: And just looking here, Google has more than $77 billion in cash and short-term equivalents on its balance sheet. Twitter is an $11 billion market cap company. In other words, Google could just pay in cash for this company and move on with its life, and it really wouldn't affect the broader business all that much. In other words, if this was something that was intriguing to Google, Google could do it, and it wouldn't even be that big of a bet for the company. Uh, but it's very intriguing, I think, whether it's Google or one of these more legacy media companies, like a Comcast or a Fox, if it if it was one of those companies, it would be a bigger bet because they don't have nearly the same level of market cap uh, and available cash, and it also would be more strategically relevant to them, uh, unlike Alphabet, which sort of wants to you know place bets all around the map, and if one of them doesn't hit, well, so be it. We have 15 other ones that are going at the same time. Sarah Fryer, Bloomberg's technology reporter who covers companies such as Facebook and Twitter for us. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Our guest this week was recently promoted to Global Chairman of Mergers and Acquisitions at J.P. Morgan and has spent more than 25 years as an investment banker. Uh, He joined J.P. Morgan in 2002 and has spent many years specializing in technology, media, and telecom and has advised on many, if not most, of the largest deals in those sectors ever, he advised SoftBank on its $20 billion acquisition of Sprint, at and on its failed attempt at buying T-Mobile a few years ago, Broadcom on its $37 billion sale to Avago, Altel's $28 billion leveraged buyout just before the start of the financial crisis, and most recently advised Dell and Silverlake on the biggest tech deal of all time, their $65 billion acquisition of EMC. Kurt Simon, welcome to Deal of the Week.
2: Great to be here, Alex. Thanks for having me.
0: And joining us again is frequent contributor to the show, Bloomberg's global head of M&A, Jeff McCracken. Thank you, sir. All right. So, Kurt, just to start, why don't you take us through your career a little bit uh, and maybe answer the question, why did you decide to become an investment banker?
2: So, I was an 87 grad at a Duke. And if you think back to the late '80s, you know, Barbarians of the Gate, Mike Milken—it was kind of the rage of the time, um, and so that was what kind of piqued my interest. Um, you know, that, I, I don't the what year—what year was Kickyard uh, Nabisco? Was that like '85, '86? Yeah,
0: it was—it was right around then, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it dragged on for years. So, so I was yeah.
2: like a junior, yeah. you know, a junior in college. So that's what kind of piqued my interest. And in, um, I, I, I actually originally thought about being a uh, sports agent, so Jerry Maguire, and then I did a little research on that. And there were more...
3: Well, you were at Duke, so that's a natural go, inclination, right? you though go. you were there before Christian Laettner and Bobby Early. I, and all yeah, that, right? my,
2: my junior year, we lost to Never Nervous Purvis in the finals, uh, Johnny Dawkins. But um, I did a little research and I, I realized there were more sports agents than athletes. So I quickly pivoted in Wall Street and things uh, things worked out okay.
0: Now that you're sort of looking back at your career, maybe, uh, in hindsight, what has been the highlight of your career so far? And then after you finish that question, I'll ask you the flip side, maybe the low light.
2: You know, the highlight of my career uh, was probably the Broadcom deal. You know, it was a, uh, I'm I'm not a semis guy, I moved out to the West Coast in uh, 2010 to run our, you know, really to, to, to build up and grow our tech practice, and I made some changes in our team, and um we didn't have a coverage office anymore for Broadcom, so I'd really never met him before, and certainly uh, could spell semis. That was probably the depth of my of my <laughs> semis experience, but had obviously done a lot on the M and A side, and uh, you know developed a, you know, in about eighteen months, which is a very short time for a transaction like that. I Just a, a really close relationship with the CFO there, who a uh, guy named Eric Brand, who I respected and admired greatly, and uh, and the CEO Scott McGregor, and you know. Things led to another, and they, you know, we really just clicked, and uh, they trusted me, and I, you know, and I liked them a great deal, and that resulted in the sale, which at the time was the largest tech deal in history. Uh, obviously, the EMC deal clipped that um, last year, but it was, uh, you know, we were, you know, kind of the 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 sole advisor on a very large deal, and it was um, that was probably I look back something I'm, I'm really really proud of.
0: And, and is there a particular sort of low point?
2: This is a funny story, yeah. So I was a first year associate at the old Salmon Brothers. You guys remember that? I don't know if you guys read Liars Poker. Do you guys read Liars I Poker? Do, oh, yeah. So I was in that training program, not with Michael Lewis, but like three years later. John Goodfriend is one of the. There you go. He friends. was a CEO, and a guy named uh, Tom Strauss was the president, and they, so they had the training program, equities in Dallas, and all that. Um, and each they'd have modules, and after each module, you would do a test, and they and they're probably like eight eight different modules. It would be like sales and trading, derivatives, M and A. So we were all in it together, bankers, sales and traders were all in kind of the same training program, same one Michael Lewis went through. And at the end of it, they have a team award and, and an individual award. So the person who scores the highest on the test, you know, you, 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 and you, you get an award and, and um, I end up getting the winning award. And for that award, you get to have lunch with the, the CEO and president. Well, my year, the bond scandal happened, so when, when I finished, Goodfriend had been fired and Strauss had been fired, and so they gave me a $300 check, pat in the back, and said, good luck in your career, sir. I was like, great, there you yeah. go. So, never never got that famous lunch, oh, but it was, uh, yeah, that John was kind Goodfriend. of my low light.
0: What, so, can you give me a quick story about Goodfriend from the time that he was there? Would he walk around the trading room with, with a cigar in his
2: mouth? Or? You know, I was so junior, I don't think I made it out of, like, the mail room, Alex, but it's, uh, you know, he he literally had, uh, I, I didn't sit on that floor, obviously, but he actually sat on the, yeah, he sat, he had a desk on the trading floor, and they he had an office behind it, but yeah, he would sit right on the, right the trading floor, had cigars, you could you know smoke on the open back in those days, but he you know, obviously did an amazing job with there, there but I never, never got it to, uh, to see my lunch. Of course,
0: the other person who came out of uh, Solomon Brothers is the owner of this company, Mike Bloomberg.
2: That's right. In fact, he, had, he developed all those systems. I remember they used to call it the B-Page, which was the original Bloomberg terminal uh, for Solomon, but uh, if you remember, they wouldn't back him at the time, that's why he went to Merrill to get the original funding.
3: Seems like it's worked out for him okay. I'd say so. I,
2: question I wanted
3: to ask you about and and I remember when you moved out in uh, 2010 I remember writing about that uh, the first big deal I recalled talking to you about after this all became public and you know drug out for months was Michael Dell's attempt to take his company private any any thoughts or any stories you can remember from that situation that uh, that stand out?
2: Listen, how could you forget? Right? I mean, that was uh, th- th- listen, That was the most grueling, difficult transaction I ever worked on. In fact, uh, the late Jimmy Lee, who was uh, a good friend, someone I respected and admired a great deal, we worked on that together, and you know, we both admitted we just, you know, f- it was physically and emotionally and mentally just grueling because it really wasn't. It was two deals, not one. If you think about, it, we had the original buyout, and then we had the proxy contest with Icon. So it went from, you know, I think our first meeting on that was like August of 2012, and the deal didn't get done. You know, a handshake till September of 2013, I think, if I remember, my dates are right. So it was a it was, and it was grueling. And you know, remember that we had to postpone two different shareholder votes, and because uh, we didn't have the support of the shareholders, so that one was. And uh, I think that'll go down in infamy for, you know, how to run a go private process. Um, you and know, you I, had Carl Icahn get in the middle of things. You had
3: Blackstone term. potentially looking at a bid and then backing out at what seemed like at the last minute. I mean, a lot of big names were involved. Yeah,
2: there. and uh, you had uh, T. Rowe Price came out publicly the day the deal was uh, announced and said, we don't, you know, we think it's a, a bad deal. Yeah, so it was, um, you know, it actually was the first kind of time we saw Long Only come out very publicly against the deal. You had Southeastern Asset Management in there. You know, they obviously were very publicly uh, against it and sided with Icon. So you, you had a lot of elements there that made that deal, you know, very noteworthy. And I think the committee there met literally 60 times over the course of that process. You think about the the job those, those uh, I guess, four committee members did was was, was, was was phenomenal. But it really, you know, it, it, it kind of, I think, set the playbook and the Delaware court, in hindsight, came out and, and blessed the process and said, this is really a, you know, an A-plus process for how to, how to do a management-led buyout.
3: It felt like the first big deal post, it wasn't the first big deal post Lehman, but it seemed like it was the first one. Eric, because I remember that happened, and then within know, a week or two after that, uh, Heinz went, yep. got bought. And that was finally, it seemed to me, the resurgence of M&A. After the first a really non-distressed slow, deal. Yeah, exactly, exactly. After yeah. 2008 and 2009 and ten, just, you know, distress and, and, you know, beleaguered bankers who weren't able to convince clients to do deals.
2: Well, listen, and the other one on the, on the Dell deal is, um, you know, we obviously shopped that to everyone. So we had the initial process and then um, the, the go shop afterwards. And there was literally... So Blackstone came out for a short period of time and showed interest, but... You know, at the end of the day, Silver Lake really was the only one there standing. And, you know, you look back and, you know, people thought that it was the end of the PC business and tablets were going to take over and obviously the you know handsets but it's turned out you know in hindsight to be a to be a, a great deal for Sobel and a great deal for Michael as well.
0: You mentioned Jimmy Lee uh, who passed away last year. There were a lot of retrospectives about Jimmy. Um, I know Jeff also had a relationship with Jimmy. What's your best Jimmy Lee story from working with him?
2: Oh, they, listen, there's about you see the smile on my face. There's a, there's a lot of him. Um you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a couple stories but but uh, you know, he taught all of us really how to be a you know, really effective bankers. Uh, he was an amazing client guy and, you know, how to prep for a meeting. I mean, he literally would sit and write bullet points. You know, he's a vice chairman, Jake Morgan Chase, would be writing bullet points, you know, for a presentation and left no stone unturned in terms of prepping. He'd be dotted every I, crossed every T, talked to everyone you need to talk to, answered every question. You know, I think he really, and, you know, his legacy will be the success, you know, hopefully we have, you know, over the next, you know, five and 10 years, but he really trained us really how to be, how to be great, uh, great client guys. You know, in terms of... Um, you know, Jimmy Lee's stories, I'll, uh, you know, I think I think there's a, a lot around the, obviously around the Dell deal, but um, I remember we had, uh, we had the shareholder vote, the first shareholder vote, I don't know if you guys recall, but we didn't, wasn't, we didn't actually have an overwhelming level of support for that first, for the first deal. And so we ended up postponing the vote and, um, you know, Jimmy comes in the room and everyone's kind of sullen because we, we you know, Michael and Egon are sullen, uh, 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 Silver Lake are sullen, the committee's sullen, and so... Um, you know, Jimmy came in and said, "Listen, you know, we, we need to break the glass strategy, which really what we you know what we needed." And he fired everyone up. I mean, he really he got you know Michael fired up and the committee fired up and said, "You know, we got to find a way to, to get this done together." And um, you know, in, in hindsight, you know we you know he did that and he uh, he, yeah, he listen. I don't, I don't think that deal. Uh, proud of all I did in that, but on that deal, but I don't think that deal would have happened without his perseverance.
3: I remember him telling me, he, uh, was, I was talking to him around the time GM was going to go public, and obviously you guys were pushing hard to be on the IPO. He went out and bought a Cadillac. A Corvette, I think it was. Oh, it was a, yeah, Corvette. It was That's a right. Corvette. That's right. And then he took a lot of pictures and he made sure to show all the people at GM that he bought a yeah. Corvette and spent a lot of time talking about how great it was, et cetera. Et There's et cetera. a good client guy. That's a client yeah, guy, right? There you go. You know, he dropped fifty grand or whatever yeah. it was to uh, impress the client.
0: Plus, well, so he got to keep a Corvette. That's there you right. Go. <laughs> right. It's not so bad. Another guy that was involved in that deal I want to ask you about, Kurt, is Carl Icahn. So we've, and uh, people that even have a passing. Knowledge of M and A are probably familiar with Carl Icahn. Of course, Donald Trump has thrown him out as uh, his his Treasury Secretary candidate. We know what he's like on TV. What is he like in the boardroom? Is he the same guy?
2: Listen, fortunately on that deal, we never saw him in the boardroom, right? Never, you know, he never never made it that far. Listen, he I, That's I think
0: sort he, of telling too. They, right?
2: Well, listen, I think was a, we look back and that was a successful defense against Carl. I mean, I think we. You know, it was a grueling battle, but I think ultimately that you know, obviously the deal got voted up and you know enclosed uh, successfully. So, listen, he—I I think he does a great job. I really do have a, a lot of respect in, in the proofs and the pudding for how you know how well he's done. Um, so, I, I actually have not been in a boardroom with him, but I've heard anecdotes for you, know, cl- you know some other clients that uh, and, and and listen, I, I'm, I'm not going to you know generalize here, but um, you know he was a very formidable competitor in that in that situation, no question.
0: I listed a bunch of deals that you guys that you've done that have been successful. I'm curious, has there been a deal in your twenty five years or so of doing this where you've been a part of it and you've thought real time while the deal was still progressing, this is not going well this this deal is not going well or this is not going to turn out well.
2: Uh, listen, I think. If you if you if you had, you would you know, your duty is to tell your client, like, what are we doing? Right? Let's take a step back here and figure out why we're doing it and um, But so, sometimes
0: that may not be your call in the end.
2: I you know, listen, i like to think that fact I, I know I would I you know, confidence I would step up here. I'll tell you a deal that you know, that's maybe the highlight, the low light, something I'm not you know one of the transactions I, I I don't I didn't necessarily see it at the time, but in hindsight, maybe you know, maybe we all could have done a better job with Sprint Nextel. We were on the Nextel side. Of that transaction, which I think history would say was probably the right side, if you know a standalone deal. So. There you go, yeah. Yeah, standalone. <laughs> but but again, if you think about all the compromises both companies made with the headquarters and the board and the management team, um, you know, I'm not sure that the, the structure of the deal set it up for you know for success. I'm not sure what it mattered given the change in that industry and, and whatnot. But I think there's definitely lessons learned about. You know, sometimes the um, a true MOE may not be the best answer, and having one dominant gene or one dominant party might be a, yeah, a better way to run the company.
3: As you look back on the AT&T, T-Mobile deal, is that another one of those disappointments that, you know, in retrospect, you still think would have made sense?
2: Listen, I think, I, I do. Yeah, you, know, you look at the industry now and, you know, how much someone like Sprint is struggling and... Um, you know, I, th- I think it's a brutally competitive industry, and um, I think a three-player market would be better for consumers and better for uh, and better for the players. But obviously, the government felt felt differently. I think what was noteworthy about that deal, if you go back, was the the bridge commitment we made. Right? It was a twenty billion dollar sole underwritten bridge commitment that was actually never, obviously, never drawn. But um, that was a pretty unique. Uh, transaction for that, you know, from that perspective, you never saw one bank write a twenty billion dollar commitment.
0: Your CEO is also a very notable guy in Wall Street, Jamie Dimon. Is there a particular Jamie Dimon story, personal story that you have that sort of speaks to his essence?
2: You know, listen, he is a great family person, right? So you think, um, and I, he talks about that, but I don't think people really appreciate how you know how strong his 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 kind of family values are and just doing the right thing and. You know, respect and admire that. Uh, great. I'll tell you a funny story. I was uh, I was walking to work maybe I don't know two months ago, and I was crossing the street to, to the subway to work to, to get the subway. And this you know black car pulled up. You know, like you know out of like the the blacklist show or uh, you know one of those you know HBO shows. And uh, sure enough, the the window goes down and it's Jamie goes, "You want to lift to work?" And I said, yeah, "Sure, <laughs> I'd love it." So yeah, now he's he's uh, he's a special. It's it's a, it's an honor privilege to work you know work for him and work for that firm it's amazing what he has done you know over the 10 plus years he's he's run J.P. Morgan Chase
0: Wall Street right now comes under attack particularly in a presidential election season do you feel like is it frustrating to you at all or do you feel like America broadly speaking doesn't understand what you do for a living
2: I yeah, probably yeah I mean, I'm sure my main street it's, it's probably hard to understand you know a lot about banking it's a, obviously a pretty nuanced industry but listen I think for whatever reason, and I'm not going to go too far here, but for whatever reason, you know, certainly, you know, it's popular politics to to bash Wall Street. I think it's unfair. Um, you know, we listen. Our firm, I, we have I don't know 260,000 plus employees. We lend, a, you know, a lot of money in small and local communities. We have branches in small small and local communities. So I think we do a, a tremendous amount of good for the country. But you know, unfortunately, it's not necessarily al- always good politics. How does a deal? Uh, this, uh,
3: Different question. I, you know, we are in the business of trying to break your deals and trying to get leaks and trying to get intel that we're not supposed to get. Unfortunately. Yes. How does it impact a deal? I mean, Dell was one of our best Breaking news stories. Uh, Alex has broken tons of tech and semi deals. Um, we weren't successful to break the AT and T deal. We were chasing that, but you guys were able to announce it before we could uh, get there. I'm just wondering how does your how does it change when a deal gets leaked?
2: I, listen, it depends on also when it's leaked, right? So, so if it's leaked the day of, like I think the, back to the Broadcom deal uh, that leaked like a, you know an hour before the market closed, the day before, you know, the day before, it's always we barely
0: know, even count that as had, a no, that's, well. That's called a hand. It, it had
2: no had absolutely no <laughs> impact. But you know, listen, I think at the you know it. it it obviously depends on on, on the deal, but um, I've seen deals blow up because you know, it leaked and the market reaction was terrible. I remember, yeah, this is back in the, the 90s, um, I think P&G was looking at a drug company. You guys, I'm not sure which one it was. It might have been one um, of Lambert or one of the drug companies, and it came out that they were interested in it. And it was basically a leak, and the stock was down ten or fifteen percent. And they had they backed off. So I, I think that if the market reaction is is poor, I, you know, we've seen definitely seen deals blow up because of because of leaks. And you know, ultimately, it can be listen. I it can be very destabilizing for the companies, for the boards. I, I know it's a, exciting on your part of the business, but there's a you know on our side, it it, it creates a lot of a, a, you know a lot of issues. Um, and I think maybe lastly, if you have a deal that's very sensitive from a regulatory perspective. You know getting out first with the deal and why it makes sense and creating the right story around it is really important and if it leaks and someone else is writing that you know that narrative it becomes you know it can create a different a different a different challenge in terms of you know, the regulatory process
3: would your life be easier if the US was governed by a takeover code like the UK is would that make it easier just easier, because then you've got something, you know, you've, you've written up your statement, you are going to declare this is true or not true or or whatever, and then you can just go back about your business instead of ducking and trying to hide, uh, of what you know, trying to hide from the public what's going
2: I, on. I, it would be, be Canada. It, it creates a, a level playing field and a set of rules that everyone plays by. So yeah, I think that's a, it's a good, good question, Jeff. I think it would, it would create a, a little bit of, a, of an easier it wouldn't be quite as chaotic from day to day, let's put it that way.
0: Yeah, I want to ask you one question at least about uh the the broadly speaking the M and A market. A lot of volatility we've seen already this year. Do you feel like we are set up where it's almost inevitable now that twenty sixteen is a step back from twenty fifteen, which is obviously the biggest M and A year of all time?
2: You know, listen. I I wouldn't go that far. Um, you know, obviously it was a tough January in terms of volatility, and and the biggest uh, indicator of the health of the MA market, as you guys both know, is is CEO confidence. And things, you know, wild swings in the markets or deals that get announced that don't trade well certainly don't don't create a lot of a lot of CEO confidence. And the cost of capital is up a little bit, obviously, particularly if you're a non investment grade company, but. Uh, I'm not quite ready to say, you know, it's not going to be a great year, or you know, couldn't be a record year. You saw the Syngenta deal today; it's obviously a very big, you know, a very big transaction. I mean, our dialogue is great, our backlog is great. You know, some companies are being a little bit more cautious, but I think you know, we're still early February. I'm not, 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 I'm not prepared to uh, to admit defeat here. I think it still could be a really good m year.
0: Is it possible that we're, we're we're in a situation where all it's going to take is a little bit of stabilization within the markets? And then you'll start to see some of these dialogues sort of turn into deals at the same level that we saw in 2015. In other words, are we going to see the same level of mega deal? this year?
2: Listen, I think so. I may be the minority of this, but uh, Jeff, you and I talked about, I don't know, back in December, that you know it really was the year of the big deal. I think there were 65 $10 billion deals last year. Right. Left. There were yeah.
3: actually fewer. I think there were lesser deals yep. in, in the grand total, but there were more deals above yep. $10 billion.
2: So my, my, my numbers are directionally accurate, but I think there were 65 deals plus or minus greater than $10 billion last year versus like 34 35 the year before. So it was you know, almost a double in terms of the number of the number of big deals. Um, listen, look at the U.S. economy. What was it, 0.7% growth the GDP? If you're a corporate and, you know, you want to grow your top line, you know, m is going to be the answer this year. You know, I, I think the next year or two look like they're very, you know, um, they're not going to be very robust top line growth come environment. So cost of capital, again, we've had a little bit of a rebalancing, but, but cost capital is still a historically attractive levels. So that, that's why I look at cost of capital is low. Growth rates are relatively anemic, and I think m is the answer to to addressing the growth the, the growth question. You
0: mentioned the Avago CEO or CFO a little earlier, someone that you sort of uh, figured Broad, out. In Broadcom. Com, or, Broadcom. Or the Broadcom, excuse me, Broadcom to the other side of that deal. Yeah. CFO is someone that you uh, sort of developed a friendship with. Is there one or two people that you've done deals with over the course of the year where you're sort of excited to do a deal? If they approach you guys and say, we want you as an advisor, this one or two – People, they're big personalities, and it just it makes it fun to work with them.
2: Listen, I think all deals are fun. to Be honest, with you. I, I really do. I, I mean, I think that gets you going every day. What gets, what gets you up at five 3 in the morning is, is I, I think the, there's, a, there's an energy level. Um, yeah, listen, I'll, it, it, it's been a while since I've done a deal for him, but there was a um, the former CEO of Altel, guy named Scott Ford, was it? We we've done we probably did I don't know seven or eight deals together building up Altel. I mean, when I first covered them. I was like a, I don't know, first year VP, did a two and a half billion dollar market cap, and we sold them for $28 billion. Um, and and I was part of building them up and doing some spinoffs and divestitures, and, and I think every time you get a, you know, 501, 905, 8133 was his number. I think, I'm, at least I'm pretty close on that. And. Uh, <laughs> It um you, you see that that number go across your phone and you're you know you almost leap out of your seat because you knew there was something exciting to work on. So he was um he was an amazing guy, did an incredible job. If you look at the hand he was dealt in telecom, and the returns that Altel created versus you know his larger peers, um, it was a, a a great team and he was just a, an incredible CEO.
0: Kurt Simon, global chairman of mergers and acquisitions at J.P. Morgan. Kurt, uh, pleasure, very good, a uh, lot of good stories there. Appreciate you joining guys, us, guys.
2: Great for having me. Thanks.
0: So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real-time like you just heard from Kurt Simon. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949 and Jeff McCracken at JC McCracken. We'll see you next week. We are proud of our new and growing suite of original podcasts, all designed to help you navigate the complexities of business, the financial markets, and the global economy. Odd Lots, a deep dive into the intersection of markets, economics, and finance with Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway, and Benchmark with Dan Moss, Tori Stilwell, and Aki Ito, an informative, jargon-free look at the inner workings of the global economy. All three shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts for Android, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Terminal. Check
3: them out and subscribe today.